good morning today. I am um, Nick Allen, the pastor of discipleship here at Rolling Hills, and it's a privilege to be in this spot um, to get to open up the Word of God with you and, and to talk about what it means for us today. I am um, thrilled, uh, literally, I just could not be more excited about this particular book of study for this summer. Um, we made it through the first half of our worship service today um, without one of our worship leaders, Nicole, going into labor. If we can make it through the next half of our worship episode without me having um, cardiac arrest, then we're going to absolutely have a great day in the Lord. I, um, I, I started my relationship with Rolling Hills Community Church um, as a staff member nine years ago this summer, and, and it's been really um, just one of the best experiences of my life, and certainly the best experience um, in, in what it's meant for me to be a vocational minister. Um, but before that, I was uh, serving at another local church, but taking time during the summer um, to go and be the pastor of Fuge Camps for Lifeway. Um, and I'd done that for a number of years, and, and I was prepping um, to go in the summer of 2006. I know this because Susan was pregnant with our first child who would be born later that fall. I got up on stage, I called her Pre Pregasus Maximus, and people like threw tomatoes at me because they thought that that was awful, but you know, it was just fun. And she has learned to uh, understand that as a pastor's wife, we tell lots of jokes and, and make things kind of fun and light sometimes. We were thrilled about the arrival of our first daughter, and I had prepped that summer um, a series of outlines because back in those days, you submitted your outlines to the almighty like people that worked at Lifeway to tell you, yes, you're allowed to preach this this summer to the hundreds of kids that are going to come to the camp where we have assigned you to be the camp pastor. And I was working really hard on the theme for that summer, and I prepared a series of outlines on the book of Judges, this character named Gideon, who I was fascinated by. And I submitted those outlines, and the fellow that received them and went over them, his name was James. He led with encouragement, and he told me, Nick, these are fantastic outlines. And I was so excited. I breathed a sigh of relief. And then came the but. He said, these are fantastic outlines, but it's for the wrong theme. You're going to a different camp. And my jaw immediately sunk, and I immediately realized that I've got to go back and figure out what the theme of summer camp is. And it was at that moment that I prayed to God and said, okay, Lord, what am I supposed to teach this summer? And he led me to the book of Daniel. And that's when my love affair with this book began. I seriously have um, one of the most honestly geeked out man crushes on Daniel alive because I, this, it does, this book does a lot for me and I'm super thrilled to be in this spot being able to take this story and understand what it means for us today. As a child growing up in the life of the church, you really only encounter two stories from the book of Daniel. Um, one is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends, are being set on fire. Um, not to spoiler alert anybody, but that happens next week, not this week. And then another one later on that we'll experience this summer where Daniel has to go and brave like lions, like in a cage, like lions that are going to potentially eat him. Sometimes I think it's kind of odd, the passages of scripture that we choose to tell children. <laughs> like setting people on fire makes a great Sunday morning Bible story for kids. Or being eaten alive by lions. I often think about that with Noah's Ark. You know, we kind of, we make our nurseries and our, our like children's wings of churches look like Noah's Ark because we think it's really cute that the animals are marching two by two to board the boat. But then I think to myself, where's the mural about all the people that drowned? Like the scene from Titanic where they're all just suffering in the water and everybody's dead except for this one family. That's not on anybody's nursery wall. Well, the book of Daniel this summer is going to give us 
several passages of scripture that might seem familiar to us because we learn these stories as children, um, except for the really gory details that potentially happen in the lives of them. Well, today is, is one of those opportunities. And so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2, spend all of our time there today. And, and I'm excited by it because God has sparked inside of me a, what I would call a Holy Spirit curiosity about this book and what it means. And, and I would say that to you at, at the start today. If there's anything about you that is excited about, curious about, interested in, like even confused by something that's inside this book, I believe that 100% of the time in our lives that was completely put there by the Holy Spirit of God. And if there's something that excites us, confuses us, like makes us curious or even confused about this book, then we know that that's the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives to draw us even closer to him. And I would say that if that's missing from you, then it's not just as easy to pinpoint the reason, because it very well could be um, that the God of this universe and his wisdom has chosen at this point in time to not excite you by a particular passage of scripture or to confuse you by a particular passage of scripture and the Holy Spirit's not at work in your life. Well, my, my advice in that moment is just to press in, read it anyway, and ask God to give you a desire to want more of him. But it could also be um, that the enemy in this world, um, an enemy who we know is alive, an enemy who we know is well, an enemy who we know is seeking to destroy the people of God might be blinding you to something that God wants to show you. He might be using some of the distractions of this Babylon that we live in um, to keep you from the gift that God has for you in his word. Well, my advice in that moment is to Press in anyway, and in the name of Jesus Christ, claim the distraction, be gone, and ask the Holy Spirit of God to spark something in you and to increase your desire to know him more. Um, the book of Daniel is unique, completely unique among other Old Testament books in that part of its original writing was not only written in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, but also in Aramaic. So Daniel chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 verse 4 comes to us via the Hebrew language. Well, in chapter two, verse four, it, it starts a journey with the Aramaic language, the, the, the common language of the day that Jesus would actually speak later on. It goes all the way through Daniel chapter eight, uh, giving us, air. and I, I, here's the deal. I think that this is what's kind of fascinating for us. Beth Moore, who knows more than any of us combined um, about lots of books in the Bible, particularly this one. She says that while God alone knows why he breathed parts of Daniel to us in Hebrew and other parts in Aramaic. At least a portion of the reason has to be that the parts that were written in Hebrew were written more readily accessible to the Jews and that the parts that were written in Aramaic were more readily accessible for the Gentiles. If that's true, then today we embark upon a passage of scripture uh, in a section of this writing that should matter to us maybe even more than other sections because you and I are from the Gentile world and we're about to engage a part of scripture that was specifically our story and our ancestry and while all of scripture matters to us, this part might be directly related to us. The book of Daniel, something else that we need to know, it's rich in something called eschatology, and that's the study of last days or end times. And, and people for all generations following Jesus have been fascinated with what's going to happen at the end of it all. It's when we ask the question, how is the future going to end? What can we expect? Daniel's probably the most eschatological book in the Old Testament, maybe even in the entire Bible. 
And, and from it, we have a direct counterpart in the book of Revelation because every single chapter in the book of Daniel has at least a portion of its content quoted later on in the book of Revelation. And all of the chapters in Revelation, except for two of them, have material quoted directly from the book of Daniel. And, and I'm geeking out about this on Tuesday nights when people come to the Bible study that we have to dive deeper, literally like an hour and a half of Daniel study every Tuesday. And you're still invited to join us this week. We're on chapter two. I'll be happy to give you the notes from chapter one. And we're looking forward to what God is going to say to us in this passage. This particular chapter has no fewer than 47 points for us to digest today. But for the sake of time, we're only going to examine five of those. It was hard to limit myself. I was at the golden corral of the Bible this week going, <laughs> what in the world am I going to stay away from? Um, but the five that have been pre-selected are in your worship guides for you today. And, and as you arrive in the book of Daniel chapter 2 where we read these words, um, I pray that something about um, these gleanings, um, we'll speak to you where you are. The Bible is an ancient book, but it was written for a present people. And that's us. It's a gift from God that, um, like a kid on Christmas morning, we can't wait to open and see what it is. Um, and so our prayer today is that something about this would inspire us and challenge us. And I'm going to be so bold as to say, change us um, from who we were into who God would have us be in light of his word. We start with Daniel chapter 2, um, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. We could have summed that up by saying that Nebuchadnezzar was in this moment an insomniac. And, and Laura did a great job reminding us this morning that in chapter 1 of Daniel, he was probably around 15 years old. And not much time has passed. We know how much time has passed because we're now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He's probably 17 years old. Think back with me, if you will, how much a moron you were at age 17. <laughs> like, while Daniel is busy becoming an advisor to the most powerful man in the known world, I was finding ways to embellish the essay that I was writing for a scholarship to get into college. <laughs> I was trying to make myself sound better than I actually, what in the world was going on in my life at 17? And here we find Daniel pictured right where he is. And the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and the dream troubled him. I have dreams and sometimes my dreams trouble me. I don't necessarily always believe that my dreams are a gateway to what's going to happen in the future. But in scripture, we know that there were countless moments where God used dreams and visions to explain present realities in people's life. We know that that happened even in the time when Jesus was born. God used a dream to visit with Joseph, his earthly father, and to tell him that it was indeed okay to marry Mary, which I always think is funny to say to marry Mary, like to actually take her as his wife and to be the earthly father to the child that would grow up to be the Messiah, the Christ that we so desperately needed. It wasn't a dream that that was revealed to him because God often uses dreams as pictures of reality. God speaks through them. And in this moment when you notice that, wait a minute, Nebuchadnezzar is neither an Israelite nor a, a believer in God, and yet God is using a dream to speak to him. And that's the first thing that we notice today, that God can speak to and use whomever he wills whenever he wills it. It's pretty much arrogance to think that you and I somehow have a lockdown on truth from God's word. And that while we understand ourselves to be, as believers in Jesus Christ, a, a chosen race, a, a royal 
priesthood, a a people that were hand-selected by God to be the seed of his child Abraham. Although we are not the biological descendants of Abraham, we who have a special place in all of human history to bring about his redemptive truth to the world, we are not now, nor will we ever be the sum total of what God can do or is doing. Even those who claim the opposite of what God's word says are not outside the bounds of being spoken to and spoken through by God Almighty. The great God of this universe invaded Nebuchadnezzar's heart through a dream and unveiled to him a portion of truth that would explain in detail all of the events of the vast majority of human history. I'm blown away by that. We'll see later on in this dream, and we'll unpack it this week in Bible study, that that God chose to give a dream that would explain all of the events of most of human history to a man that did not believe in him, to a man that did not claim him as true, to a man that was actively oppressing and enslaving the people of God. No one is outside the bounds of being spoken to and used by the great God of this universe. We pick back up in verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. First off, the Chaldeans, who are these people? Well, if you go back to chapter 11 of Genesis, when the Tower of Babel was built because people wanted to make a name for themselves and they wanted to reach into heaven and be like God, we'll find that right after that chapter, Abraham and his family were called out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. And they traveled en route to Haran. His family settled there. And then eventually God called Abraham to leave Haran with his nephew and his family and his herd and to travel to a land that he was going to show him. It was the promised land that would one day become Israel. The Chaldeans. Present right there where God called his people out of. And now they've been carted off right back to. Another thing that I learned from Beth Moore in my study for this summer study is that God often calls us out of something And then we exist and the enemy calls us right back to it. In fact, I think that the enemy often wants to drag us back to the places that God has called us out of. The king not only dreamed this dream, but he called in the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell him what the dream was and then to make an interpretation of what the dream means. And they responded and said, no one can do this. So tell us the dream first. And he said, absolutely not. You will tell me the dream and then make an interpretation for me. And then he proceeded to tell them that he was going to tear them limb from limb and that their houses were going to be left in ruin. Here's the deal. If my body was being torn limb from limb, the last thing that I would be concerned about is my house. However, that was going to be laid into ruin as well. And we're going to see throughout this passage of Scripture that Nebuchadnezzar's threats were never idle. 
It wasn't like us two weeks ago looking at my oldest kid and saying, Lily Kate, if you don't clean your room, you're not going to be able to go to camp. That's an empty threat, and we knew it because camp was already scheduled and it was already paid for, and we weren't going to take that away simply because she did not clean her room, but yet we were all happy to say it in the moment. Nebuchadnezzar's threats were never idle. They were never empty. He was always going to make good on the things that he said he was going to make good on in these moments. We pick back up in verse 6. It says, but if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Well, there's a flip side. If we could do this, then we get prizes. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you were trying to gain time. It's a stall tactic. You're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And here's what we know. We know this about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we know this about this word of scripture. That just because God reveals truth does not mean that you and I automatically understand truth. You see, the Bible is the revealed word of God. And just because we have it doesn't mean that we understand it. It takes study. It takes interpretation. It takes the counsel of other wise believers who've been given the gift of teaching, men and women gifted by the Holy Spirit, to unpack what this word says to us and what it means for us. Here's what I'm praying for us at Rolling Hills. I'm praying that God would somehow, by the power of His Spirit, pour out on us such a deep desire to know the Word of God that we don't have enough small group Bible studies to fill it up. I'm praying that the demand is higher than ever before because the desire is higher than ever before. I'm praying that as we lean into the fall and we begin to launch community groups and small groups again to meet in people's homes for the purpose of opening up God's word and unpacking what it says for us in daily life, I'm praying that the demand of people desiring to be in a small group is so high, it literally sends Laura Chapman into a panic attack knowing where are we gonna find the leaders in the homes in which to do this. And I don't mean like the clinical type of panic attack, I mean just the funny one that would be so odd because she would be running around frantic going, we've got to have more groups because because there are people that want to join. There are people that want to gather every single week in somebody's home and open up this sacred text and unpack what it means because we know that inside of it are the words of life that will help us to live. I'm praying that this Bible study that I get the pleasure of leading on Tuesday nights, it's, we're in a room right now that seats 50, we're 20 strong and I love it, but I'm praying that there will come a day at Rolling Hills Community Church when we offer some sort of in-depth Bible study on a weeknight, that there are so many people that want to come, we have to fill up not that room, but this room and maybe even twice, because our hunger and because our desire to know him, not just know things about him, but to truly know him, capsizes every other part of our life to where we want and crave nothing more than this spiritual word. Because just because we own it, 
Just because it's bound in leather, just because we can go to a store and pay way too much money for this, does not mean that we automatically understand this. Just because you repeat some words to the God of this universe when you're eight years old about inviting the Lord Jesus to come and save you from your sins, past, present, and future, so that you might have a relationship with the known God of this universe, that you would be forgiven and in a right spot with him, so that one day you can stand with him in a place called heaven for all eternity. Just because that is a claim in your life does not mean that you understand everything that's in this book. And one prayer is not enough to pray. My hope is that you and I would come to the realization that just because we have this truth does not mean that we understand this truth. And we must seek it out and desire to know it. John chapter 16 Verse 13 unpacks for us the role of the Holy Spirit. And it says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide us in all truth. But I think the intrinsic principle throughout this is that for us to understand this truth, we have to want to. Daniel chapter two, starting with verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And at this moment, because at the end of chapter one, Daniel was now moved into the king's palace and he was found as one of the wisest people in all of Babylon, this would have included him. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. If you're somebody that underlines words in your Bible, under, underline prudence and discretion. Maybe your Bible says the word tact, underline that word too. If you're somebody who likes to tweet things, tweet the words prudence and discretion and maybe even tact. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain. Okay, this is his executioner and he's making a declaration to him with prudence and with discretion. Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show him the interpretation. So in that moment, with prudence and discretion, Daniel once again goes and makes a request to the man that's in charge of him. In Daniel chapter one, he went to the guy who made him a eunuch and requested only vegetables. Not the request that I would be making to the guy who just did that. And in this one, the guy that was going to be his executioner, he comes and says, I need an appointment. I need a scheduled time for me to go and see the king. And here's the deal. This is a freebie. It's not in your notes this morning, but he went with prudence. He went with discretion. He went with tact. Rants on social media are neither prudent, tactful, or discreet. Just a reminder that we as believers in Jesus will always represent him better when we determine that our public stands for what his word says should always be prudent, tactful, and discreet. We never make a case for God behaving like the world. I believe, and I need to preface it with I believe, that we're living in a day and that a day even worse is coming when Christians will be separated, isolated, and even oppressed for the beliefs that we have in Jesus Christ. I think that it's Roman rule all over again, 
And we can choose in this moment to be an angry zealot, or we can choose in this moment to be like a life-giving Savior. We could learn a lot from Daniel about prudence, discretion, and tact. We cannot expect an unbelieving world to behave like a believing world. We cannot expect this kingdom to look like that kingdom. And being angry when this kingdom or country doesn't look like that kingdom only makes us look more like this one. So we continue in the book of Daniel. It says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Sounds like a dream. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. God alone is the revealer of all mysteries. And when we want answers from God, we must only pray to God. And we must enlist other people to pray alongside with us for the answers that we need from God. That's why these prayer request cards exist in your worship guides every single Sunday, because every single Monday we covet and we desire the desire to pray for people and with people about the deepest desires of their heart. I love this, that when something troubled Daniel, he asked his small group to pray with him. And one of my favorite times for our group that gathers on Monday nights is when we get to the end. And literally, prayer request time lasts as long as Bible study time. Because we desire for the community of faith that God has established for us to pray with us. God alone is the revealer of all mysteries. That word mysteries in Aramaic literally means secrets. And we want to know the answer. We have only the great God of this universe to ask. God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to limit, he's chosen to limit himself according to the prayers of his people. You hear that? God, in his great sovereignty, has chosen to limit himself to the prayers of his people. If I could get this thing off, I would drop it right now. Gene Getz um, is a guy that would um, never wear Birkenstocks and a V-neck t-shirt to teach. He's like a real pastor and a seminary professor and everything above. I mean, um, he's one of the guys that I've been studying this summer as I prepare to teach. And, And he says, though God is sovereign, he has chosen to use the process of prayer to unleash his miraculous power to enable us to solve problems that range from those simple issues that we face at the purely human level to those that are very complex and far beyond our human capabilities. He quotes another Bible scholar, sir, scholar and says, somehow, somehow, I have no idea how, somehow the simple act of prayer links the sovereign God to a finite man. When man prays, God responds. Difficult situations change and unexpected miracles occur. Daniel and his friends prayed that God would reveal to them what this mystery was. And when, when they prayed that prayer, God responded. Listen to the prayer that Daniel prayed in thanksgiving because of that. He said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, verse 20. 
to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Amen. And I love this prayer for a couple of reasons. One, because it reminds us that we ought to thank God for the wisdom that he gets because all wisdom definitely comes from him. But it also reminds us this. Wisdom, it's in your notes. Wisdom is not a concept. Wisdom is a relationship. Check out the prayer. He started in this whole like third person prayer saying things about God to transitioning in verse 23 to saying things to God. Oh, God is great. He reveals deep, hidden things. That's a pronouncement. To you, oh God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. That's a profession. His voice changes because there's a relationship. He's not just saying things about God. He's talking directly to God. You and I cannot seek wisdom from God until we seek a relationship with the Son of God. And now that Daniel had the interpretation, verse 24, this is what he did. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch, who had clearly already found favor with Daniel and trust in him because of his ability to interpret dreams. It says that at the end of chapter one. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. He basically just repeated what the Chaldeans had said before. No man can do this. No man, no man can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. There's our eschatology. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he, that's God, who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. God alone is the revealer of all mysteries. Wisdom is not a concept, it's a relationship. And if you continue reading in chapter two, the whole next section, verse 31, all the way down through verse 45, tells us this unbelievable dream that he had where he visioned a statue and parts of it were gold and parts of it were silver and parts of it were bronze and parts of it were iron and iron mixed with clay. And in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar in the past was given a picture of the future, which for us living thousands of years in the future, again, a lot of that has already come to pass. We're going to discover, I could totally geek out on this for another half hour, but our our Bible study this week is going to give us the actual portions of that dream and the actual parts of that dream that related to the human history that you and I know 
But the four parts of that statue represent the kingdoms that have existed in this world. The empires that have come. And at the very end, a rock comes and destroys them all. It's the literal coming kingdom of Christ. And because hindsight is 2020, and we can look and see that there was indeed a Babylonian empire, and we can look throughout history, not just this word, and see that there was indeed an empire of the Medes and the Persians, and that there was indeed an empire of the Greeks, and that there was indeed an empire, a mighty empire called Rome, whose influence still stretches out to us today. Because those were literal kingdoms, we can rest certain that there is coming another literal kingdom, and it's going to be the reign of Jesus Christ. We could spend really our entire life unpacking what that dream means, pinpointing the details of what God has already done and what he is yet to do throughout history and what he will do in the future as his son returns. But fast forward just to verse 46. Because Daniel made the dream known and because Daniel was able to interpret its meaning, the Bible says that then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So Daniel was gonna get this high position of honor and, and then he made a special request that his friends get that position instead. And he remained in the king's court, in the king's presence. A lot of times in life, you and I fast forward to the blessing, the high honors, the praise, the, the prizes. And we might miss the miracle. Because the miracle wasn't in the lives being spared. The miracle wasn't in the high honors being given. The miracle was in a declaration made by a man who did not know God to profess his belief in God. When you and I credit God for being God in faith through our lives, this is a bold statement. The world will change. This Babylonian empire is the known world and the leader of it just made a very public proclamation that Yahweh is God. In John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said these words, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When God is praised, when God is given credit, when God is given glory, when we announce to the world that we're nothing without him and that he alone is the revealer of all mysteries, that he alone is the great God of this universe, that he alone is the ultimate creator and life giver, when we live a life that draws no attention to us but reflects all of that glory back to him, the world will change. In the life of Daniel and the Judean slaves that have been brought into exile, there's anywhere from 65 to 68 more 
years of time out left. But chapter 2, verse 47, where the king paid homage to Daniel and said, truly your God is God of gods, was a little bit of hope in the middle of despair that I think would have done two things. It would have comforted the slaves to know that God was still God, but it also would have shamed them for not being people who lived like it. In Daniel chapter 1, we talked about this last week, verse 2. It said, the Lord brought Nebuchadnezzar and his army in. And that word Lord in scripture, translated back to Hebrew, because you know it's chapter 1, is the word Adonai. It's a name for God that means to us ownership and control. That it was the great God of this universe who handed his people over to exile? I believe for the purpose of being able to remind them who he was and what he could do, whether through them or in spite of them. We ask ourselves this question today, knowing that our response is to be a people who live lives giving all credit and glory to God so that the world around us will change. How do we do that? It's pretty obvious right now. You don't have to go past the news or the election to realize that we are living in our very own Babylon where people are invited to govern themselves and even define themselves. How do you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, attempt to live in a world that does not support the Bible's claims and that does not recognize our values as believers? We do so first by getting panic out of our vocabulary. We're not living as people who are afraid of what is yet to come because we know who is in control. We know who's in control. And if things in this world are happening around us that do not seem to affirm the God of this Bible, he's not threatened by that. And so we shouldn't be threatened by that either we should probably recognize that God may be using things and also people who do not know him, profess him, understand him, or even like him to accomplish his greater purpose. When our view of God allows him to be so big to have the leeway to do something that we don't like or get in order to accomplish his greater purpose, then that means that our view of his sovereignty has somehow matured into the life of a believer who knows that regardless of what happens in this world, he's in control of it. And it's only when we fully believe, not just believe in our heads, but believe in our actions, that the God of this universe who created it is also in full control of it, 
that we can live a life that expresses back to him all glory and all credit and all praise. And when we are able to look at the world in spite of all of the problems that we are so frustrated by and say, I don't get it and I may not like it, but I know that there is a God in heaven who not only understands it, but is in control of it. That's the kind of life that gives credit back to the great God of this universe for being the great God of this universe. And somehow we have to know and understand that when we live a life giving credit back to the great God of this universe for being the great God of this universe, that something in our world will change. I'm okay if I don't get to be the one who decides what those changes are. That's a mature view of God's sovereignty. I'm okay if we as a people, humbly and broken before God on our knees, praying for our nation, praying for our government, praying for our current president, praying for our future president, and praying for all of the nations of this world, those that collectively know God and those that collectively are very far away from God. I'm okay with us as a people laying before God and saying to him, you're in charge and it's okay with us, whatever you do. And we're gonna claim that whatever happens is just another bigger part of your plan that you're using to draw people back to yourself. This declaration from Nebuchadnezzar, a declaration made in the language of the world, was an opportunity for people in this world who had no clue who the God of Israel was to understand who the God of Israel is. And it was not only a clue for all of the people who did not know God, it was also a reminder and a wake-up call for all of the people that were supposed to know God. And I believe that the lives that we live as Daniels in our very own Babylon of this day can be the same. An invitation for people who do not know God and who are far from him to know him and also a reminder for people who should know better about God to return to him. And in that return and in that declaration, the world around us can change. And it starts with you and I being like Daniel a people who believe that God is the revealer of all mysteries and that he is in control of everything all the time. How do we function as people living in a kingdom that's not our home? We live as Daniel did, in full confidence that God is God and that he is in control. Would you enter into a time of prayer with me? God, in this room, there are individuals who, because of present circumstances, need a reminder that you are in control because their job is in exile. Their future seems exiled. A marriage seems exiled. A behavior and an addiction is like exile because we as people are living in the presence of an enemy who is trying to drag us back to the places that you've called us from and we need the reminder to recognize that in spite of it all you are in control and that you are using these circumstances to draw us back into a right relationship with you 
Would you move in us, God, and make us confident, make us bold, keep us from arrogance, make us prudent, and and make us tactful and discreet, make us humble like Daniel, but yet make us bold in the face of an enemy that, that we know beyond all doubt that you are in control.